Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. There's an old preaching adage. Context is king. If you want to know the power of something particularly of words, you can't hear them without the context. For example, President Washington's farewell address is only as powerful as it is when you realize that he's creating the peaceful transition of power. The Gettysburg Address gains its power from the horrors of the Civil War. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech takes on added meaning when it's understood in the historical context of the civil rights movement. Now, the speeches are good on their own, but in their context, they take on new power, even new meaning. And the minor prophets are kind of like that. When we read them in the Old Testament, they're not presented in context. In fact, there's an entire genre of literature placed in between the history books and the prophetic books. That's books like Proverbs and Psalms, wisdom literature, poetry, Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations. And then you get the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And then you get these minor prophets. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the minor prophets. We're going to continue that later in March. But we're taking a break in our Minor Prophets series to look at a not-so-minor history because we want to know the context of the Minor Prophets. We want to know why they're saying what they're saying and who they're talking to. Reading a Minor Prophet like Hosea or Amos is like listening to one of those old speeches from American history in a vacuum. You might be taken by the language, you might recognize the passion of the prophet, you might even learn something from the prophet, but when you add the context behind the prophet's speeches, well, then what he says and what he does makes a lot more sense. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the historical context of the minor prophets in this series that we're calling a not-so-minor history. So, to begin, we turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm going to be going through the entire chapter and more um, during the sermon today, but I want to begin just by reading a few verses. 1 Kings chapter 12, I'm going to read for us verses 16 to 20. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, The people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. 
So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. Let's pray. God, as we turn to what might be unfamiliar passages of Scripture, unfamiliar history from the Old Testament, I pray that your Spirit would be at work in us. I pray that this would be a time of learning, yes, but not just learning with our minds, also learning with our hearts. Would your Holy Spirit use your word to continue transforming our hearts more and more into the heart of Christ? Would we learn what it is to be wise in your eyes? Lord, would you help us, spur us on to holiness and repentance through your word? Give us ears that are able to hear hearts willing to obey and understand. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when most of us think of Israel, this is the image I think a lot of us think of. Um, This is the nation of Israel. It's similar to what all of our friends on the Israel trip are going to be seeing over these next 10 days. They leave on Thursday. Please praying for them. Be praying for them. Um, that's the region that is Israel under Saul, David, Solomon. It includes both the northern portion, it's where Galilee is, it's where Jesus does a lot of his ministry. It includes a southern portion, and that's where Jerusalem is, where Jesus died, and where he rose again. The north and the south, the land of milk and honey. Milk in the south because there's a lot of uh, livestock down there. Honey in the north because you can grow beautiful uh, date trees and it's date honey. That's in mind when the prophet uses that phrase or when God uses that phrase to Moses. Land of milk and honey. Milk in the south, honey in the north. But during our not-so-minor prophet series over the last couple of weeks, You've seen a map that looks a little different. It looks more like this. Now, this map highlights the north, the kingdom of Israel, and also highlights the south and calls it the kingdom of Judah. It's no longer a united Israel, but a divided kingdom between Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And you may be asking yourself, how did I get here? from a united kingdom to a divided kingdom. How do we get from this picture on the left to that picture on the right? That's the focus of our sermon today. It's this historic moment where the kingdom splits in two. It's a bit of context that is vital for understanding the ministry of the minor prophets. We want to know how we get from a united kingdom of Israel to a divided kingdom of Israel. Here's why it's so important. Two-thirds of the minor prophets do their work in that divided reality. Two-thirds of them. Now, there were, in Israel and Judah's history, 42 kings and an evil queen that reigned for a few months. 42 kings and a queen from the time of Saul to the time of the exile. Only three of those kings ruled over a united kingdom. All of the others ruled in this time of division. The kingdom was only united again after the return from exile, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. 
And so we need to talk about history today. We need to know why this happened. And we need to learn from it. But as soon as I say the word history, that might be how you feel. Really? I didn't come to church for a history lesson. And I get it. Not everybody's a history nerd like me. I understand. We have a couple history nerds in the room. You're welcome. But for the rest of us, this can feel like, oh, I don't really want to just sit here and learn history. Well, I'll promise one thing. You're not just going to hear history. There will be application to this. It's a sermon, not a lecture. But secondly, we don't want to ignore the importance of history. We've all heard a famous quote by George Santaya. Santayana, maybe is how you say it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And it's true. We need to learn this history because this is God's history. And this is the history of God's people. This is the story of where we come from. More importantly, this is the story of where Jesus comes from. So we want to know this story because the history is not only going to help us understand the minor prophets. It's not going to just help us understand why they say some of the things they say or do some of the things they do. It's also going to help us as followers of Jesus learn some really important lessons of what it is to be a disciple. And so when we get to the history, we don't want to tune out. We want to lean in and ask what it is that God has for us through these pages. Well, let's look together at 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We're going to be introduced to some folks. I'm going to read about three slides worth of First Kings, and I'll go back and I'll explain some of the things that we saw. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you'll be a, a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, my, father's, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, before we get into too much more, who are these people? Well, Rehoboam is Solomon's son. His mother was named Nema. She's an Ammonite. And therefore, we can assume that Rehoboam was not worshiping the God of Solomon, the God of Israel, but rather worshiping the God of his mother, the Ammonite gods that are actually going to get mentioned later on in the text. 
But it's also true that by the time Solomon died, he himself had largely abandoned, if not completely abandoned, worshiping the God of Israel. By the time he died, Solomon had built places of worship for the Moabite god Chemosh. He'd built places of worship for Ashtaroth of the Sidonians, Milcom and Molech of the Ammonites. Those are Nama's God, perhaps Rehoboam's gods. Now, Rehoboam was 41 when he took the throne, when Solomon died. He reigned for 17 years. So that's Rehoboam, R. There's also Jeroboam, J. If you need help with that, R and J, because the names are basically the same. Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was one of Solomon's servants. And unlike Rehoboam, he didn't come from royal stock. His mother, Zeruah, was a widow. Jeroboam was a servant, and yet he was skilled, and so skilled that Solomon trusted him. But then Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon. We'll see more about that in a minute. And so Solomon tried to have him killed. You don't want to die, so Jeroboam flees. He flees to Egypt. He's there until Solomon dies, and that's when he comes back. Now, Solomon has died, and he is the last great king of Israel. Rehoboam, his son, he has a decision to make. What kind of king am I going to be? And Jeroboam's wondering kind of the same thing. So he joins the leaders of Israel in demanding that the king lighten the people's loads. They want less taxes, easier labor, less building projects. Apparently, Solomon had become a pretty brutal king by the end of his years. He had built wonders, even one of the seven wonders of the world. But he'd done so on the backs of laborers who were taxed and worked relentlessly. Rehoboam says, give me three days to decide what kind of king I want to be. He seeks counsel from the elders, those who remember the righteous and faithful days of old, but then he rejects that counsel. He seeks counsel from his peers, those who grew up in the idolatrous nation of Israel, serving these other gods, not the God of Israel. And he accepts their counsel. And this is what he says when he gathers the people back to himself. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. Forsaking the counsel that the old man had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah, the Shilamite, to, Jer- to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been rebelling against the house of David to this day. 
And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So Rehoboam informs the people that he's not going to listen to their plea for mercy. If they thought his father Solomon was harsh, he was going to be even harsher. And in response to this message from the king, the people rebel. They might have been willing to obey Solomon, but they weren't going to show the same kind of deference to Solomon's brat kid. It wasn't going to happen. If Rehoboam was going to be this kind of king, then they didn't want anything to do with him. So the people of Israel go back to their own tents. They leave Jerusalem. They go back home and they decide we're going to tend to our own land and we're going to ignore the nonsense that's coming out of Jerusalem. Only Jerusalem, the surrounding town and villages, were loyal to to Rehoboam. It's just that. The rest of Israel was doing their own thing. Sometime later, King Rehoboam sent Adoram north to acquire servants for forced labor. He's going to follow through on his threat. Adoram had actually done this very same work for Solomon. He's known for being the guy who comes and takes people to forced labor. So he's probably pretty well hated by the people in the north. When Adoram shows up, the young men disappear. But this time it's different. They're not going to be exploited anymore. So they take Adoram and they stone him to death rather than hand any more of their sons over to be forced labor in Jerusalem. Rehoboam sees this and he gets out of there. He flees. He flees to the north. He takes up residence in Jerusalem to the south and he starts plotting his next move. And then we hear this. Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So from the perspective of the writer, he's saying Israel has been torn in two since that moment. Never healed. So that beautiful time of David's kingdom, David who took over for Saul, was beloved by the people who had a son, Solomon, who had wisdom from God and then forsook that wisdom for the wisdom of this world. That kingdom destroyed in just a couple generations, torn apart. Jeroboam, taken by the people in the north, and he's made king of Israel. Rehoboam will become king of this new country called Judah. And that's the split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel has been irreparably torn, but Rehoboam is not just going to take this lightly. It's time for war. Here's how he responds. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. I just want to note something here. I want to note the mercy of God in this moment. 
Clearly, the people of Israel and Judah are deep in sin. They should not be doing what they're doing. They have abandoned the true God for false gods and for power plays. So God could have very easily allowed these armies to slaughter each other, and that would have been a punishment for their sinfulness. But he doesn't do that. In his love for his people, he stops the fighting before it starts. The civil war becomes basically a cold civil war at first. There will be clashes. If you read later into 1 Kings, you hear Rehoboam and Jeroboam were at war all of their days. And that continues to the next kings and to the next kings and to the next kings after them. But here, when these two nations could have obliterated themselves in war, God steps in because of his mercy. Not because they weren't sinners, but because God is merciful. I think many of us have experienced this kind of mercy. God could have allowed us to taste the full consequences of our sin, but because of his mercy, he doesn't. He intervenes. He shows mercy to us. He rescues us. He spares us because he loves us. This is the kind of God we serve. The God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, and the God of today are the same God. His mercy shown back then is the same mercy shown to us. Still, the damage has been done. Israel's been torn, and there are now two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Rehoboam remains king in the south, and the king of the north is Jeroboam. So let's see what Jeroboam does in the north. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. He went out from there and built Penuel. So he begins his own building campaign. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. Every time you see David here, he's talking about Rehoboam. That's the descendant. So even when the people left and said, look after your own house, David, David's been dead for a long time. They're talking to Rehoboam. He's standing in David's place, sitting on David's throne. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he sent one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan, then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that had been devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Golden calves? Really? You're thinking, that didn't work out too well the first time. What are you doing making two of them? Well, 
it might actually make a little more sense than we initially think. There's a couple things to remember. First, Jeroboam, like Aaron, back in the time of the Exodus, who built the first golden calf, Jeroboam also spent most of his life living in Egypt. And in Egypt, golden calves are common. And while Jeroboam would have known the story of the Exodus, he even mentions the Exodus here, he wouldn't have necessarily known the story about the golden calf in the wilderness. Here's why. The times of Solomon in Jeroboam's life weren't exactly times of deep Bible study and theological quiet times with Jesus. There was a lot of idolatry going around. It was rampant. The things of God had been shoved aside. So it's entirely reasonable to believe that the story of Aaron and the golden calf had been purposefully forgotten by all but a few. That's a story that makes idolatry look terrible, and now the nation is filled with idols. They're going to silence that story. And if the people had forgotten the story of the golden calf, then Jeroboam's access to that story would have only been through the written histories. And those are most likely housed in the temple. But the temple is in Jerusalem. The temple is in the south where Rehoboam is king. He doesn't want even the people going down there to worship. He's certainly not going to go into the temple himself with his library card and say, hey, can I check out a book? He's going to get himself killed if he does that. So he probably doesn't know the story. But this leads us to our first application point today. Fear of man leads to foolishness. Fear of God leads to wisdom. Notice Roboam and Jeroboam. Both of them are driven by fear of man, and it leads to foolish decision after foolish decision. Roboam is afraid that the people aren't going to respect him the same way they respected his father Solomon, so he's going to be even harsher than Solomon was. Because if he can't get their respect, he's going to get their fear. But it backfires, and civil war is the result. Jeroboam is also afraid. He's afraid that if the people go to Jerusalem to worship God the way God commanded the people to worship him, then they were actually going to turn their backs on him and join Rehoboam. So he builds idols for the people to worship in the north instead. And he follows in the footsteps of Aaron's folly centuries before them. And this is what's key. Neither king... Rehoboam or Jeroboam, neither one of them seek the wisdom that comes from above. Both of them ignore the wisdom of God, and they both had access to it. Rehoboam had access to the elders who remembered the Lord, but he rejected them. And even better than the wisdom of the elders, he had the wisdom of the priests in the temple, but notice the priests are nowhere to be found in this story. Completely absent. He doesn't even go near the temple. His own father Solomon had built this beautiful temple and Rehoboam doesn't go anywhere near it. He instead relies on the wisdom of men, particularly the wisdom of men who will tell him what he wants to hear. He relies on worldly wisdom. And Jeroboam, he didn't have access to the temple, but he did have access to the prophets 
And we know that because he's spoken with prophets before. In fact, one of them is already referenced in chapter 12. Let's go back to chapter 11 and see Jeroboam interacting with one of these prophets. This is before the civil war, before Jeroboam has to flee to Egypt. This is going back in time a little bit. That time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. This is what sparks Jeroboam's rebellion. A prophet of God comes to Jeroboam and says, God's going to do something. When he does it, the northern kingdom is going to be yours. Jeroboam then rebels against Solomon because the prophet told him what God was about to do. Here's what is really important. The prophet told him. God spoke to Jeroboam, which means even though he doesn't have access to the temple, he does have access to the word of God through the prophets. He could have spoken to Ahijah. But even more, Ahijah's not the only prophet around at this point. Shemaiah was the prophet that was used by God to come in and stop the fighting. He could have talked to Shemaiah. You go to 1 Kings 13, a third prophet shows up, this one to come and condemn Jeroboam for building the golden calves. So Jeroboam had every opportunity to go to a prophet and say, the people want to go to Jerusalem and worship. God, what should we do? But he doesn't do that. Instead, he seeks counsel from the people around him. He seeks advice, yes, but not from God. Rather, he seeks advice from politicians and military leaders around him because the concern is how to maintain power and keep the people from going back into Rehoboam's kingdom. He's not concerned about spiritual things. He's concerned about political and military things. Jeroboam could have trusted in the Lord. He could have sought the wisdom from above. Instead, he seeks wisdom that James calls earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That same choice is a choice we are called to make every single day. Seeking wisdom from God is a daily call for the Christian. God may have called us to a task or a mission like God called Jeroboam. But we dare not try and accomplish that task, accomplish that mission in our own wisdom and strength. If we do that, if we trust our own wisdom to carry out what God's called us to do, then that will eventually, inevitably, lead to our destruction. God calls us and then God equips us with his wisdom to meet that call. 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, a call marked by humility, gentleness, and peace. I had the privilege of being at uh, Tabernacle Christian Academy in Poughkeepsie on Friday. I got to speak to the kids there, and that's the passage I spoke on, James 3. The wisdom that comes from above, the hallmark of that wisdom is humility, gentleness, and peace. Jeroboam pursues none of these things. And we often don't pursue these things. We pursue the wisdom from below, the wisdom of this world. When we forget God's presence and we forget to seek his wisdom, either willfully or unintentionally, we open ourselves up to the opposite of wisdom, which is fear-based foolishness. God, in all his wisdom, is with us. And so whatever we face in the day, whatever we face in the week, we have access to the wisdom from on high when we not turn to lesser wisdom, to worldly wisdom, would we not trust in worldly counsel, but instead turn to the source of all wisdom, to God himself? God is with us. His wisdom is with us. But you would be forgiven in asking, where was God during this? His nation ripped apart. Well, we've already seen him at work a little bit. I want to highlight it. Because in this story, which looks like it's just a human story about a human civil war, a human tearing of a nation, and the human folly of two kings, we actually see God at work every step of the way. He's at work first in his judgment. It's from 1 Kings 11. He said to Jeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. God tore the kingdom, not those kings. We just read this in 2 Kings 12. The king didn't listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which he spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. God tore the nation in response to their idolatry, their wickedness. Those gods, in order to worship them according to the nations that propelled these gods forward, to worship these gods required gross sexual immorality and profound violence, even to the point of child sacrifice. Happening not hundreds of years after David, but one generation after David. How quickly the heart of God's people turned to other gods. And so he judges, but it is him. He's the one who's judging the people. That is God's presence sometimes. It is to feel the pain of God's judgment against sin. That is what the people are experiencing here. You see, Israel did not tear herself. God tore her. Her division was an act of God's judgment against his people because of their idolatry and wickedness. 
On the surface, it might seem that everything fell apart because of power plays or poor political strategizing or even the foolishness of Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But behind it all was God's righteous judgment. He was the one who brought these things about. But here's what's remarkable. Even in the midst of his judgment, God shows mercy. Look at the mercy that we've seen already in 1 Kings 12. The word of God came to Shemaiah, the son of God. Prophet comes. They're about to go to war. Mass bloodshed is about to happen. You shall not go up, the prophet says, or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. You can't fix what I've torn. All you can do is make it worse. So stop. Stop. He spares the people from profound bloodshed. He could have allowed them to wipe each other out, but he doesn't. In his mercy, in his love, he stops them from fighting. But this is not the only time we see God's mercy in view. We also see it in 1 Kings 11, the chapter before. This is when the prophet Ahijah is telling Jeroboam what God is going to do. He's going to rip the kingdom in two. Ten tribes to the north, one, kind of one and a half tribes to the south. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand for the sake of my servant whom I chose. Saying to the son of David, or the grandson of David, He's going to give him one tribe that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. He is going to judge Israel and Judah greatly for their wickedness. But he will not judge forever. He will relent. There will be affliction, but then God's mercy will be shown. Judgment and mercy, justice and mercy go together in God's economy. They go together in God's economy because they go together in God's character. Justice and mercy are both outflows of God's love. In response to sin and wickedness, a sin and wickedness that, that creates profound destruction around the world, God's justice is shown. And yet... It is a justice that's rooted in love for the people who are suffering, love even for the ones who are causing the suffering. It is a disciplining love. And in the midst of that disciplining love, there is a mercy. Don't, don't kill one another and hear me, I'm not going to judge you forever. There will be mercy shown. Believe that there's a helpful equation in the Christian life. In fact, I think there's quite a few helpful equations. Here's one of them God's justice plus God's mercy equals our healing. God's justice plus God's mercy equals our healing. And this is what happens at the cross. At the cross, God's justice and mercy meet. And through that, we are healed. That's what Isaiah prophesied 
You may remember this, where it says, Lent, we're heading towards the cross. Here's what Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I will afflict the house of David, God said. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The justice and judgment of God against sin poured out on the Son of God. And yet mercy upon mercy, through his wounds, we find healing. As we head towards Holy Week, this is what we meditate on. Think about this. The Son of God entered into our affliction by taking on flesh. He entered into the division, exemplified in the division of the two kingdoms in the Old Testament, but especially lived out in our own everyday lives, dividing from one another in hatred and violence and injustice and oppression. And then God the Son, not just the Father and the Spirit, but the whole of the Godhead, including God the Son, poured out holy wrath on God the Son. Think about that. God the Son poured out wrath against sin on God the Son. That he might absorb that for our healing. We often wrongly say that the Father is the one who punished the Son. No, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit punished Jesus on that cross. The Son punished the Son for our healing that we might receive an unfathomable mercy. When he absorbed that wrath against sin, he made a way for each and every one of us. If we cling to Christ by faith, We don't receive that wrath. We receive mercy. We receive grace, forgiveness, love. The result of Christ's death is our healing. By his wounds, we are healed, the prophet Isaiah said. Now, the the tearing, the affliction in 1 Kings is a division So let's ask the question, does Jesus heal us by leading us into the opposite of division? The opposite of division would be unity. Does he heal us by leading us into unity? The answer is yes. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
This is what Jesus does. He takes people who are divided from one another and unites them together in his own flesh. You see, the people of Israel will go into exile. We'll look at that next week. And after some time suffering in exile, they'll come back into the Holy Land. We'll look at that in two weeks. But you'll notice something remarkable. When they come back, the celebration is muted. Yes, they're one nation again, but it's one nation that's not quite what they remember or what they long for. That's because the total fulfillment of the reunification, the total fulfillment of unity does not happen until the Gentiles, you and I who aren't Jewish, until we are also added into the number. And then we find true unity in Christ. Do you see the healing that Jesus does? I believe that the prophets knew this formula. God's justice plus God's mercy equals our healing. I came up with that formula, but I'm sure somebody else has already written it before me. But that principle is there. And I believe that the minor prophets that we're studying this entire season, I believe that they had an idea of this truth. Even though they were prophesying during a time of terroring, remember, two-thirds of the minor prophets prophesy during that torn kingdom. Only a couple of the prophets are after the reunification. They regularly, even in that time of tearing, are calling people to return to the Lord and receive mercy. Yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. We saw Joel last week. Two weeks ago, we saw Hosea. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. Then after the exile is over, Zechariah says, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. You see, this history in the background of the prophets amplifies the hope, amplifies the hope that is called to us that his mercy and his justice together lead to our healing. But the call in the midst of that is to repentance. Time and time again, we hear calls to repent, warning of judgment, pleas for God's mercy, and promise of healing. Why? Because when God comes in judgment, it's never to blot out his people forever. It is to lead us to repentance, which brings about mercy and ultimately our healing. And we are invited into that process today. That process of repentance, which leads to mercy and hearing and healing. Maybe God is tearing at your heart right now. Maybe you felt him tearing at your life. Receive it. Receive that discipline from the Lord and then repent. Repent of that sin that God is uprooting from your heart. Allow God to tear you up in love that you might repent and receive mercy and a healing that brings about an ultimate peace. It is in this way that we know the healing touch of our great physician. And so the call for us is not to run away from the convicting pain of the Holy Spirit, but rather to lean in in repentance. I leave you with this final quote from Henry Nouwen. 
To forget our sins may be an even greater sin than to commit them. Why? Because what is forgotten cannot be healed. And that which cannot be healed easily becomes the cause of greater evil. If he is tearing at you, if the Spirit is convicting you, don't run from it. Confess your sin. Repent and receive the healing touch of your good God and Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, but that you convict us. You convict us that we would repent because through repentance we receive mercy. And when your justice against our sin and your mercy because of Christ are shown to us, we are healed. You bind us back together. And you bind us to one another. When we gather here at the table every week, we are reminded that our union in Christ, our union with you, leads to communion with one another. That we are bound to one another in faith. That we are bound to one another, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father, one Savior and Lord. We are bound together because you have done a great work in Jesus Christ. So Lord, lead us to repentance. Remind us that when we repent of our sin, we receive mercy. Heal us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.